our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the casual observer, it would not have seemed that big of a deal. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem to attend the Passover feast requested of one of Jesus' disciples that they wanted to see Jesus. So what? The tourists wanted to see Jesus, the, to- the most talked about teacher in Jerusalem at that time. Everybody, it seemed, wanted to get close to Jesus. Some wanted to be healed. Some wanted to hear what he had to say. The Pharisees and religious leaders just wanted to get their hands on him. And so these Greeks, they come and they, they say to Philip, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And we understand that by see, they meant meet. They wanted to talk with him about what we're not told But it's really not that important. The point we have to grasp is that these are Greeks. In other words, they are Gentiles. They're non-Jews. And they come to Jesus. Now, we could somehow maybe imagine and, and, and guess why the hesitation in Philip and why he went to Andrew. Jesus had announced over and over again to his disciples that he had come to Israel. When he had sent them out two by two, he had, sent, he had said to them, you can read about this in Matthew 10, he had sent them out two by two and he said to them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. Or they had heard him say to the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of Israel. And so we can imagine Andrew and Philip approaching Jesus with perhaps a little bit of nervousness. But Jesus hears the request and listen to his response. Verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. See, Jesus recognized the approach of these Greeks for what it was. That this represented a world-changing moment. Gentiles had now begun to stream to the Savior. The world had begun to seek salvation from Jesus. And that signaled that the Son of Man was about to be glorified by way of His death. The hour had come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And that glorification would come through the process of His crucifixion. The purpose for which He had come into this world for this very hour had arrived. And the Father, we read, adds His voice to give further evidence to the witnesses that all was going in accordance with His will. And then Jesus explains the significance of the moment. That great things were about to happen. He would be glorified through His crucifixion, but its effects would be earth-shaking. Our theme this morning as we look at John 12 verses 31 to 33 is this. Jesus announces the powerful effects of his glorification. And we'll see in the first place that one of the effects, the first effect would be judgment and expulsion. And in the second place, a gracious attraction, a drawing to himself. Well, the first powerful effect of his glorification is that there would be judgment and expulsion. And we're drawing that from verse 31. Listen again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And so the path to the cross for Jesus had now begun. We might say that 
Jesus' journey to his death had now switched into high gear. There was no turning back at this point. All things must happen as ordained by the Father. Five days later, Jesus would be arrested, he would be tried, and after much physical suffering and torment, he would be executed through the wretched process of crucifixion. The demons and all the dark forces, you have to imagine, had to be rejoicing at this point. They had to be planning this big celebration that they could that could take place in just a few days. The, the evil one, you can imagine he had to be filled with glee at this point. You can imagine very easily uh, think for him thinking to himself, or maybe even saying out loud, bruise my head, will he? Let's see him do it while he's stretched out on a cross, gasping for his every breath. I've got these Jews so riled up and these Romans so fed up that they will take his life, they will snuff it out, and they will go home and have a good night's sleep. How hard Satan had fought through all of history to keep the Savior from coming into the world, to destroy the line of promise. He'd succeeded in getting Cain to kill his own brother, Abel. And you would have thought that that was the end of it. But then God gave another son to Adam and Eve, a man named Seth. And so Satan had set to work on Seth's children, urging them on to greater and greater wickedness until God decided to destroy them all with a flood. And yet he saved a remnant, Noah and his family. And from the bloodline of Noah came Abraham. And from Abraham sprung 12 tribes. Well, no matter. Pharaoh would get uh, or Satan would get Pharaoh to take care of them really easy. Work them as slaves and kill them off. Bring the covenant line to a screeching halt. No Israel, no Messiah. No salvation. When Pharaoh failed, Satan used the idolatry of Canaan and fierce enemies like the Babylonians and Assyrians and many others. And he used Israel's own rebellion. All efforts had failed. The Christ, in the fullness of time, was born into the world. The promised Savior had come. And yet in Satan's mind, he had to be thinking, it was all for nothing. Now Jesus would die at the very hands of those he came to save. He would be lifted up from the earth. He would be suspended on a cross, abandoned and rejected. And so it would be. But Satan was wrong. He had not won. This was the beginning of the end. For him. This was not outside of God's sovereign plan. Christ indeed would die at the hands of wicked men. But in that moment he would be fulfilling his father's will. See when Jesus died on the cross, he says here, the world would be judged. And we have to ask ourselves what that means exactly. Well, it means that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, all of mankind, all of humankind, 
were about to be exposed for their rebellion against their creator. This, we, we might say, was the climax or the culminating moment of mankind's heinous wickedness against their creator. The world was about to condemn itself by its treatment of God's son. The selfishness, the idolatry, the self-reliance, the stubbornness, the, the disobedience of all mankind was put on display, as it were, when Jesus, the spotless, sinless Son of God, was crucified. You see, the world thought, foolishly, that it was passing judgment on Jesus by executing Him on the cross. The fact of the matter is, the cross was passing judgment on us, according to the words of Jesus here. Jesus was God's Savior. He was God's revelation of His love for mankind. He was the express image of our Creator. He was the agent and representative of God. He had come to conduct His Father's business. And how did humankind respond? Like the tenants in the vineyard, we plotted against Him. And we killed Him. And we threw him out. And rejection of Jesus was rejection of God himself. In the cold-blooded murder of God's Son, our sin, brothers and sisters, displayed itself in its most clearest form. Jesus' death exposed how evil we really are and what we are capable of. That's what he means here, that the world would be judged when the Son of Man was lifted up. But there was more. Jesus said that through his death, the ruler of this world would be cast out. And by ruler of this world, boys and girls, who do we think that means? It means Satan, the devil. Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. He's called the great red dragon in Revelation 13 who possesses seven diadems. Diadems are crowns, which are symbols of power. But Satan was about to be cast out, out when Jesus was crucified. The Greek verb refers to a forcible throwing out, an expulsion, a driving out. It's a difference between asking someone politely to leave and perhaps they go along with us and they step out of the room or the, or the building, whatever it may be, and forcibly throwing somebody out. That's the sense of the Greek verb here. Satan's grand assault upon Jesus, at least in his mind, was about to begin. The stage was set, or so he thought, for the demise of the Messiah to close the curtain on God's salvation. It was very simple. He would enter Judas Iscariot. Judas would go and sell Jesus out into the hands of his enemies. The powers of darkness would reign when they would surround Jesus with swords and clubs. But what Satan misunderstood was that it was his tyranny that was about to come to a halt. That Psalm 2 was about to be fulfilled. Satan's power was to be broken with a rod of iron, to be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. Because at the moment when Christ was enthroned, Satan would be dethroned. 
He would no longer be able and allowed to lead the world astray with his lies and keep us captive to his will. The rest of the New Testament clarifies this for us. We'll just read a couple of passages as scripture reference. The first one is Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15. That makes the point. Satan's power was canceled. His dominion over us was destroyed. We were freed. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what we were subject to before Christ did his perfect work, brothers and sisters. We were slaves to lifelong slavery. Listen as well to Colossians 2, verse 15. He, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Ironically, through Jesus' agony and death on the cross, Satan would suffer utter defeat. His rule was about to go down in flames. Christ would triumph over him who held us bondage to sin and death. In what appeared to be Satan's greatest moment of victory, he would be soundly defeated. Beloved of God, let us reflect upon the cross of Christ in this Easter season. With these two things in mind, we were judged and we were certainly found guilty. Guilty of treason, guilty of rebellion against God. The crucifixion of Christ was evidence of our hatred, our natural hatred for God and our love for ourselves. But here's the second thing. Satan was also tried and he was cast out. His power was destroyed. And that's good news for us today because the way to God, which was closed to us because we were blinded by sin, the way to God has been cleared and opened for us once again. We are no longer in blindness and darkness. Satan has been dethroned, and so let, us, let nothing hinder us from coming to the Savior. But that was just the half of it. We see in the second place that Christ's death would also result in a gracious attraction. Listen to verse 32, from which we're drawing this point. Verse 32, And I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And we're using attraction here as a synonym for drawing, that word drawing. Christ's crucifixion would result in many being called, drawn, inclined, pulled toward Him. In Reformed theology, we speak of irresistible grace or effectual calling, it's called sometimes. And what does that mean? It refers to that mighty work of the Holy Spirit, whereby He inclines otherwise cold and dead hearts to respond in faith to Jesus. It's that drawing power of the Holy Spirit, where, is, where He changes a, a dead heart, a, a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, so that that heart begins to love Jesus and desire Jesus. 
That's effectual calling or irresistible grace. That's what, that's what this is talking about here. The Arminians say, well, that just means an enticing, a coaxing, a wooing. Something like what grandpa would do when he has candy for his little grandson and he wants him to come and he'll say, come, come to me, come sit on grandpa's lap and I'll give you a candy. That, that's what the Armini, uh, Arminians think that this word draw means. But it certainly does not mean that. It's a compelling, a forceful moving to what Jesus done by the Holy Spirit. It takes a, a mighty work of the Holy Spirit to draw a sinner to Christ. The same word is used in John 6 verse 44 where Jesus says, No one can come to me. You hear that? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is impossible for us to make a decision to choose to come to Jesus. The Holy Spirit must draw us. The Greek word translated draw. Sometimes it's translated drag. It uh, means to compel by irresistible superiority. To compel by irresistible superiority. It means that something is moved by a force that is, that is stronger than itself. Something is moved by a force that is stronger than itself. Boys and girls, let me ask you this question. Because I've seen this happen in my own home. Have you ever tried to run under the bed and hide from mom? Let's say, for instance, she says, okay, time to brush your teeth and time to go to bed. And what do you do? Somehow you get this idea in your head. If I run under my bed and hide, mom can't get me and I'll have to get away from this horrific thing called brushing my teeth. And what has happened? Never works out well, does it? Because you forget that mom is smarter than you and she's stronger than you. And she actually will get down there and she'll grab you by the ankles and she'll haul you out from under that bed, right? And then it's like... Okay, go brush your teeth now. Right? That's what this is talking about. A drawing out. She uh, hauls you out by the ankles. That's the sense of the Greek word. In John 18 verse 10, we read that Peter drew his sword from the scabbard and he cut off Malchus's ear. This is not a gentle coaxing. You don't ask your sword nicely to jump into your hand. You grab it and with all your strength, you pull it out. Or when this word is used in, in uh, John 21 verse 11, where Peter is dragging, same Greek word, a net of fish. Again, a, a net of fish can't be coaxed onto land. You can't stand on the shore and say, here, fishy, fishy. Here, net, net, net. No, it requires physical strength to grab hold of that net and haul it to where you want it to be. Or think of Acts 16 verse 19 of Paul and Silas being physically dragged into the marketplace. They were not cooperating. They were taken against their will. And so the word draw or drag refers to a forceful compelling. All that to say, and let's keep that in mind as we listen again to our text, verse 32. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Something amazing was about to happen. Something that the world had only seen, seen glimpses of up to this time. Because there were, there were people who had come into Israel, who had joined Israel, who had come to God, come to believe in, in the Lord God, Jehovah, 
in the Old Testament, you know, people like Ruth and Naaman the Syrian, Rahab the prostitute, you know, there were different people, the Gibeonites, right? But these were just little glimpses. Something was amazing was about, about to happen that the world had only seen glimpses of up to this time. All peoples would be drawn to Jesus. Now, obviously this does not mean everybody in the world, every man, woman, and child who were born from that time on, because obviously there are still many, many unbelievers, people who hate Jesus in this world, uh, inside, sometimes even outside, sometimes even inside the church. There are still many unbelievers who practice false religions, who follow many other beliefs and teachings, and uh, maybe many even false Christians in the church. And so we have to understand that that's not what Jesus means. Not every man, woman, and child ever born. We have to understand that what Jesus means by all peoples is people from every nation, language, and race. Salvation, you see, would no longer be confined to the nation of Israel, to those who were of the natural bloodline of Abraham. Well, Abraham himself had been promised, hadn't he, in Genesis 12, that all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. And God had announced through the prophet Isaiah, had he not, that his house would be a house of prayer for what? All nations, people from every language, color, and race would make up God's kingdom. Even former enemies would be part of that kingdom. Psalm 87 spoke of people from Rahab and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Ethiopia, being reborn as citizens of Zion, God's church. These who were former enemies and rivals and opponents of God and His people. So this was being fulfilled through the suffering and death of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Greeks that came to meet Jesus was just a foretaste. They were a trickle. In a very short time, there would be an avalanche of believers coming to Jesus. Satan was about to lose his power to bind the nations. The glorious gates of righteousness were about to be thrown open to us, brothers and sisters. Elect from every nation were about to become one, united under one head. On the day of Pentecost, and thereafter, we begin to see the drawing in of the nations into Christ's church. And so the death of Christ was certainly not the end of his work. It was only the beginning. The other sheep that we talked about last time, owned by the good shepherd, who were not of the sheepfold of Israel, would begin to stream in and stream to the Savior. And there would be one flock with one shepherd confessing one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Indeed, we may say amen to what John says of Jesus, John the baptizer, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He would begin to draw all peoples to himself. And how would he do that? How would this be put into motion, in other words? It's surprising, really. It would be surprising to the world. It would not be done like some crusade or some mass conversion with swords loud clashing and people forcefully being converted at the edge of a sword to convert to Christianity. 
become a Christian or else. Not that way at all. It would begin when Jesus was lifted up. Now I think we all know, boys and girls, what that means. But just in case we don't, because there could always be confusion, John clarifies for us in verse 33. He makes this comment. He, that is Jesus, said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. How did Jesus die? He was crucified. So when he speaks of lifting up from the earth, he means crucifixion, where he would be hoisted up and be made a public spectacle of, hanging only by the nails that pinned his hands and feet to the cross. Same Greek word is used in John 3.14, meaning lifted up, which speaks of the serpent in the wilderness being lifted up Suspended on a pole in the times of Moses. But here's the thing. The Greek word that's translated lifted up has a double meaning. See, it can mean that, or it can also mean lifted up in the sense of exalted. The same word is used, in fact, in Acts 2.33, where Peter speaks of Jesus as being exalted to the right hand of God. Paul uses it of Jesus in Philippians 2.9 when he speaks of him as being highly exalted by God the Father. Same Greek word. And so we want to cast that double meaning and understand its significance. Jesus was about to be lifted up on the cruel cross. But at that moment, he was simultaneously being lifted up, that is, exalted to new glory, and power. Or we might say it this way, at the same time the world was lifting up Jesus in mockery, the Father was lifting him up in honor. And he would be given the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He would begin to draw all peoples to himself. It would be this massive, ongoing attraction of people to the kingdom and to Jesus, the Savior. And this would be set in motion by his crucifixion, what he calls here his glorification. The last days had begun. Congregation, Jesus, again, was never a victim. He announced his death, even the method of his death, He announced the judgment of the world that would be the result of his crucifixion. He announced the dethroning of Satan even before it happened. It is for this purpose that he came into this world, he says in verse 27. The arrival of the Greeks signified that his time was drawing near. He was about to be glorified. And he has. We're preparing to celebrate it again this year with the coming of Good Friday and Easter. Now it remains for us, and that's all the Father asks of us, believe in Him. Believe in Him. Don't hesitate. Don't put it off. Because if God planned all of this from eternity and ensured that all things came and fell into place just as He has ordained, who are we to say 
not yet. I'm not ready. I'm too busy to think about these things. I'm too young to think about these things. I got lots of fun to be had yet before I really get serious about this Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I know all of it. I've heard it from the pulpit. I've heard it from my parents. I'm just not ready. Who are we? Could that not be the gravest of sins, to trample upon the Son of God by putting off what we should be doing right now? The cross of Christ. We have been tried. And we were found guilty when our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. And at the cross, Satan was judged and expelled, cast out. And the dominion of sin over us was broken. Now Jesus is drawing us and he's calling us into his kingdom and into his embrace. Let us not hesitate. Let us deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. Amen.